0: If you would do me a favor of taking a a long and slow breath. My plane landed about 45 minutes ago. And I have still not yet landed. Um, But it is a joy to be with you today, to be with the workers and the helpers and the healers and the lovers and the troublemakers and the damn givers. And would you let me know if you're here today? Uh, Really briefly, in case you don't know anything about me, um, I grew up not far from here, Syracuse, New York. I was raised in a fairly traditional Italian Roman Catholic family, so I was raised on gluten and guilt. Um, A lot of pasta, a lot of repentance in here. Um, And the short story is ministry came later in life. It was a second career for me. And as I walked down the road of ministry, I started to feel a tension between the person I felt I was called to be as a follower of Jesus and the pastor that I was expected to be. And I found myself in a megachurch in Charlotte, North Carolina, and I was super Christian mega pastor man. And, and there was some kryptonite I experienced in the form of theological questions that I had. Those theological questions were, uh, how are we treating LGBTQ people this way? My questions were, why are there no female pastors? My questions were why is our church uh, only span a racial diversity from white to beige, (laughs) right? And I began speaking into these things and writing about them, and that became a point of turbulence in my life, and I had a choice at that time to either avoid all that stuff, those theological questions and the lack of diversity in the church and the toxicity I was seeing and really felt a part of, or I could lean into it, and I leaned into it and Not long after, um, I'd started a new church, and the pastor, um, well, he said to me, listen, um, I want to give you a vacation. And I said, really? He said, yes, it starts immediately. And I said, when is it then? He said, it doesn't. (laughs) And uh, I found myself in this space being allowed to ask anything and say everything. And as a minister, that was of extreme value to me. Uh, And that has led me to this place of trying to reckon with The church that I've been a part of, of of a white church that has been complicit in some of the grievous wounds uh, that our country has experienced, and I'm still trying to be part of something healthy. And uh, I don't know why you're here. I, you know, I don't know what brought you here. And if we had time, I would ask you because. The way that this building is set up, it's like most buildings. There are a lot of chairs there, and then there's one space here that feels like the more important space, and it's not, right? Because anything that you have to say, anything you've brought here is as valuable as anything that's going to be set up here. And I wonder why you're here, but I want you to think today about your eyes. I want you to think about the lenses through which you view the world. When you look at the world outside today, what story do your eyes tell you? What do they tell you about God, about the future of this country, about your family, about your worth? What do your eyes tell you? I have uh, two children. I've been married uh, for 23 years, and our family had gone to Universal Studios. In Florida, and the first thing that we did when we got there was this Shrek 4D experience. It's a, it's a 3D movie, and they spray you with water, and they, you know, they, it's a very immersive. And we went in, we got our 3D glasses, and I put mine sort of around my chest, around my neck here, and the house lights went down, and on screen it said, please put on your 3D glasses. And so I did. And the movie begins, and I'm not impressed. It wasn't as vivid as I thought it was going to be. It wasn't as realistic as I had hoped. And I looked around to see if anyone else was sharing my displeasure, and they were all fine. And I said, well, obviously I have much higher standards than they do, right? <laughs> and, and I looked at my wife, who could always mirror my disgust at the world, and she was fine. And I thought, well, she married me, so what's accounting for her taste, right? <laughs> so I, I sort of grit my teeth, and I, I watched this film that I'm not impressed with, and the house lights come up. And my wife looks at me and she says, what's that on your chest? And I said, oh, and I realized that I had put my sunglasses on to watch the entire movie. So if you know me and you know my writing, my wife is long-suffering. And so she said, let's, let's go around. And she said, we'll get the 3D glasses again. And we go through the process and we sit down and I put on the 3D glasses and I watch the film. And it's great. It was so realistic, Right. Well, the lenses through which we view the world matter, don't they? Because the lenses through which we view the world, they shape our stories. They form our prejudices. They enable our imaginations. The lenses through which we view the world actually craft our image of God. And the thing about the lenses that we are wearing today, we've been working on them for a while, right? Right? They're a product of the places in which we are raised. They're a product of the families that we are a part of, the the churches we grew up in. They're, They're part of our personalities and our life experiences. They're part of our very physicality, the way we experience the world. And what that means is you have historically specific lenses through which to view this life. And if you're a person of faith, your image of God has been crafted because of that story, And because of that truth, everyone in here who is a person of faith has a specific God. There are as many different gods in this room as there are people in this place, right? Because what we tend to do is sift the scriptures that we love for those parts of God that seem to ratify our prejudices, that seem to reinforce our fears, that seem to speak the narrative that really we want told about ourselves, and what we're here to be is a people who say, let me borrow your lenses for a little bit. Let me see what you see because I wanna see what you see because I wanna know what you know. And we wanna be the people who say, and could you wear mine for a little bit, I want you to understand what I see. That's a beautiful thing and the problem is we have a president whose every instinct, whose every impulse is to darken the lenses of people, to muddy them. With every incendiary tweet, with every fake emergency, with every Fox News alternative fact, right? With everything that he says, with every insult, what he does is he clouds the vision of people so that they can't see reality anymore. They can't see the beauty that their lenses should show them. And what's worse is that he has a white evangelical church that has sold its soul and they have leveraged their pulpits and their social media profiles and their Sunday sermons to speak that same truth that muddies the lenses of people by placing fear there, by placing prejudice there. I told the story not long ago to some friends. It's in one of the books about being in a coffee shop at a hotel conference, and I'm with a teenager who happens to be a lesbian, and we're talking about the issues of diversity and equality and love and justice in the church, and I felt like I was being pretty convincing that day. You know when you're talking and you're thinking in the back of your head, you're doing great, John, keep going, right? (laughs) And right outside the window of the coffee shop, she pointed to a man, and it was Sign Guy. Out there, right outside the window, was Southern Baptist Sign Guy with a bullhorn and a sign that said that she was going to hell for who she was and how she loved. And she said, John, this is all great, but how do I love him? How do I welcome him to my table? And I wanted to phone a friend because I realized I was in a place of turbulence. And I said to her, what we have to do with Sign Guy is realize two things. One is that he was not born Sign Guy. He has a family of origin. He has a church he grew up in. He has an image of God in his head. And the second thing we have to realize is right now, he's doing exactly what you and I are doing. He's trying to hear the voice of God and respond faithfully. Now, we may see exactly what he's doing. We may see it as ugly and hateful and violent, but he doesn't know that. Right now, in sign guy's mind... He believes he's doing something noble because the eyes through which he sees the world tell him that God wants him to do that. I have a good friend. Her name is Sally, and Sally is part of a Unitarian community in Raleigh. And every Sunday, Sally meets with people who disagree with her, and they all happen to be Trump supporters, And she said, I meet with them and we play cards and we share a meal every Sunday and I hear things that I do not want to hear and I have conversations I don't want to step into but I think it's important enough because I want to let them know that someone is not going to shut them down. Someone is going to listen. She said, once in a while I see cracks. She said, we were talking about racial inequality in our country and I was telling her the reality of that and the woman looked at me and she said she got really sad, and she got really quiet, and then she said, that's the thing I don't understand. And my friend said, what? And she said, I just don't understand why God made other races. She said, if, if he hadn't, we wouldn't be having these problems. See, this woman was not a horrible person. She was not trying to do damage. In fact, she was lamenting the fractures that she sort of sees, but her default position was that I, as a white person, in the baseline. And I need to keep speaking into those spaces, my friend said, because I want her to understand that this is not reality, right? So if if Adam and Eve existed, they were not Caucasian. The cradle of civilization did not have a Cracker Barrel. Right? Um, So we have people walking around with clouded lenses and let's not believe that we don't as well, but we have people who are being polluted by a president and by a party and by a church. And I think we're here because love cleans the lenses, right? Love lets us see clearly again. I've been traveling almost nonstop for two years, in different cities all the time. I also took part in the Vote Common Good tour. I don't know if you know anything about that. There are some folks here from that. So the idea was that largely white evangelicals were gonna speak to white evangelicals in the, before the elections and let them know, you may have voted a certain way your whole life, but you have permission, and it's probably by Jesus, to vote a different way. That you can be a faithful Christian and you don't have to be Republican. And we, you know, it was traveling and Jackie was there and Doug was there, all sorts of people in this room. And my part of the journey was in Texas, wonderful. Um, I love you if you're from Texas, but that's where the bus broke down. So can you imagine being at a truck stop in the middle of Texas with a bus with a big sign that says Flip Congress, the conversations you have but I heard about people's, I I experienced the lenses that people look through. And people think of me as a writer or a pastor or a jerk blogger or whatever they think of me as. But I've been trying to treat myself as a war correspondent. To travel around and I'll do some talking, but I'm really trying to listen. I have conversations with people and I, I wait for the break in their voice. And I look at the tears in their eyes and I listen to the stories they tell me. And I realize that we do have a divide in this country, but it's not the one we think. See, the divide we have is not a theological divide. It's not a political divide. We have a vision divide in this country. We have a disparity in the way we view the world and how people should be treated. See, the vision divide is not even the one that my progressive Christian friends and I think it is. This is not about progressive Christianity versus conservative Christianity that is too myopic, it's too arrogant, it's too Christocentric. This is about two different groups of people, people of compassion and people who seem to lack empathy, right? The divide is people who approach the world with open hands and people who seem to live with closed fists. The divide are people who see life as abundance and those who feel they always live in lack. The divide are human beings who believe that we are one interdependent community and then there are those who believe in a territorial, nationalistic America first. The divide are the table makers and the wall builders. The divide are the people who try to default to love and those who are ruled by fear. And the problem is, our president seems to speak only to this area, to the close fist, to the fear, to the lack. And yet our faith traditions at their best speak to abundance. Our faith traditions at their best speak to our oneness, to our belovedness, to our value together. So, what I need to say to some of my progressive Christian friends here is I love you, I'm one of you, but we're not going to fix this. We can't even fix Christianity. What's going to fix this are disparate human beings who are sold out on the idea that all people are valuable inherently because they exist, right? It's gonna take us loving well and see what we have to do is redefine love because I had a friend of me say, John, listen, we've got it. And I said, what? He said, we've got love. We've got exactly what we need. If we can't win with love, we may as well pack it in. But I wonder what that word means to him. Because we need a non-denominational, interfaith, cross-platform love, right? We need an expression of love in this world that is not a soft, saccharine, hallmark movie, slow jam love. No, we need a love that is fierce and bold and relentless, right? We need a love that does not sit quietly while bigotry bullies the vulnerable people. We, have, we need a love that will not be toned police into being silent because we're being offensive, We need a love that will not apologize for our passion for humanity. We need a love that is dangerous, that confronts ugliness, that welcomes turbulence. We even need a love that ticks off our families and our pastors. Because to have this bold, audacious, willing to be pissed off love is costly, isn't it? Because you people who are here, you who are listening, you beautiful souls, You're exhausted, because it's exhausting to give a damn, isn't it? To be a person of compassion in a time and a place when compassion is in such great demand, right? To wake up every day, push back against predatory politicians and toxic systems and corrupt legislation and acts of treason and presidential tweet tantrums and your own family struggles. The volume and the relentlessness can wear you out. Have you noticed? And see, I want you to do the work of love. That's why we're here. But the work of love, there is collateral damage to being the people who give a damn. And I want us to make sure that we are caring for one another, we who are doing this work. And to realize that you don't always have to be doing this work, that you can actually rest and let someone else carry you. That this interfaith, non-denominational, this massive community can let you rest for a little while. Because what I'm hearing as I'm traveling is this is not about a politician. It's not about a political party. It's not about the things we think it's about. It's about the relational fractures that we are feeling. It's about the family members we feel estranged from, right? It's about the churches where we no longer feel welcome. It's about the things we've seen about our friends on social media. That's the fight, Someone came up to us on the Vote Common Good Tour, and she said, I'm a Fox News orphan. My family began watching this network, and now they don't want anything to do with me. A a guy came up to me in Minnesota, and he said, my mom is not my mom anymore. He said, I don't recognize her. She believes everything he says. He said, I don't know how to deal with her. I don't understand her. A woman posted on one of my blogs this week, she said, my 37-year-old marriage just ended because of what I've seen in my husband over the past two years. Friends, this is the collateral damage. This is the heart of this. It's in this relentless urgency. It's in this profound grieving. It's in this relational fracture that we meet. And I don't know why you came here, but I think you're here because you're one of the damn givers. I think you have a deep love for humanity, and I think that's why you're so exhausted. I think it's compassion that pulls us into the places we wouldn't otherwise go. That's the heart of the message of Christ and and. The scriptures say that Jesus looks at the crowd and he has compassion on them because they're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. I think I want to keep those eyes that Christ had. I want to look at the crowds and see compassion and not have contempt, right? And it's so beautiful that that word compassion is tied to the word bowels. Right, that idea that you could feel so deeply about the suffering of another person as to be physically altered to the point of sickness. That's why it's not inaccurate today when we say someone's story of suffering moves us. That we're twisted in our bowels. So compassion is a bowel movement, if you will, right? (laughs) And I wonder... What twists your bowels? I wonder what it is that will not let you rest. I wonder what it is that makes you physically ill. But if you're a person of decency, a person of love, a person of mercy, there's probably a long list, right? That's the problem. See, what we are experiencing right now is we're grieving We're grieving the loss of family, we're grieving the loss of church, we're grieving the loss of America, whatever it is that you had uncovered. So if our lenses are the issue, if the divide is one of vision, well that's how we're gonna have to fix this. One of the things that I had to learn to do as a younger Christian, and I'm still trying, is I had to get a bigger God. See, I grew up with false stories. I grew up with false stories about gay people, about people of color, about Muslims, and in all those false stories, something about those false stories told me that I was a little bit more deserving of the love of this great big God that I believed in than they were, and I couldn't figure out why I felt that way but it's because I was fitted with lenses that told me that's how the world worked. And I decided I wanted a God that was bigger than that, even if that bigger God got me kicked out of the church to find it. I want a God that's bigger than Franklin Graham's God. Franklin Graham's problem is his God is far too small. His God resembles him. I want a God who so loves the world, not a God who is America first. I want a God who's not as petty and judgmental of a jerk as I am. I want a God who's neither white, nor male, nor Republican, nor cisgender, heterosexual, because I already have that God. I just need to be aware of it. Because I think a bigger God will push people of faith to have proximity with the pain in the world. I think when we get that proximity to the pain in the world, we get better stories about people. I think we start to see them more clearly. Someone said to me, John, you know, you speak at all these progressive events. You're just preaching to the choir. I don't know how many choirs they've met, but I know they all need some preaching to, right? (laughs) Not long ago, I I wrote a, a book called The Bigger Table. And it was about creating... Redemptive spiritual community among disparate people where we could all have a seat. About hospitality and authenticity and diversity. And I I believed in it, I still do. I wrote it in 2015. I wrote it in 2015, I wish you could have met me then. Friends, I was effervescent. (laughs) I was optimistic. I believe I even looked like a young Brad Pitt. I don't know what happened. (laughs) Aids me horribly. Um, But something happened. I wrote the book and I published the book and then we had a presidential campaign and then we had an election and now we've had two years of a presidency and I'm faced with the reality that maybe I don't want the table as big as I said I wanted it. Because there are a lot of people that I am now hesitant to welcome. I'm facing my own fraudulence. I'm facing my own hypocrisy. I'm facing my own inconsistency. Because what I'm finding about myself is I have a hard time having compassion for people who have no compassion. All I'm saying about that is I have to make sure that I don't have false stories about people. I have to make sure that my lenses are cleared constantly Have you ever broken a bone and not known it? Anyone here? Two days ago? Oh, it was broken for two days. I, you know, you get older and things just start hurting, so you just let it go after a while, right? And, but, you know, you've had that. I've had friends that they go, yeah, I walked around for three weeks and I went, finally got an x-ray and it was broken, right? Anyone ever have a compound fracture? Did you know it? Yes. Because with a compound fracture, the bone breaks through the skin, and when stuff that was supposed to be inside is outside, you're waking up. You don't have to think, I wonder if there's a problem. Well, you who have been doing the work, you who have been lovers and healers and caregivers and activists and learners, you've been looking at the world with an x-ray, and so you've seen it. Right, this is not a surprise to you. Donald Trump did not create anything, he simply revealed it. So you're most of you in this room and those listening online or you're not shocked. The problem is what Donald Trump has done is he has pressed that bone through the skin and now more people are alarmed and now they're finally seeing maybe we're broken. This is why it's a beautiful opportunity because we can speak to those people who are now grieving and alarmed and terrified, and we can say, we have something else, that there is a disparate community of people who will not rest until people are treated with the dignity that they deserve. Just wanna check myself. Thank you. So a few years ago, well, more than a few now, it was my first a youth event at, at the mega church in Charlotte. And I wanted to impress because I had to be super Christian mega pastor man, right? And I didn't want to let them know that I was a fraud, right? So I was working really hard. We had this massive youth event and all the students were there and all the parents and I had all my team there and it was really, I was hummingbirding, which is when you float around really fast and go, hi, how are you? Good to see you. Hi, how are you? Good to see you. And I saw two students standing at the back of the room and something said, Go there, and really, I think when our faith is at its best, we are seeing the people on the periphery. And I walked up to these two students, and I was giving them the best youth leader spiel I had, right, all my canned jokes, all my witty banter, telling them all about the things, and I got nothing. They just looked at me. And so I tried a little harder, told them about some other events that were going on, and then I told them where the snack bar was, and then I just kind of slinked out. And I thought, that was a disaster. But the following Tuesday, I got an email from the older of the students, and she said, you may not remember us, but we were in the back of the room, and you came, and you talked to us. And she said, we were there because we we hated church, and we were being forced to go, which is what you want as a youth pastor, right? (laughs) Please come under coercion and duress. And she said, we had had a really bad experience with a youth pastor at our former church, And she said, the last thing we wanted was to talk to a youth pastor, (laughs) which I get it. And she said, but something was different. And she said, you made me feel visible. And I took that phrase and I never let it go because that's the greatest thing that we can do for people is make them feel visible. And as we're trying to live in this world and be loud in the cause of love, we have to see people. We have to see people who are being oppressed, people who are vulnerable. We have to see people who are being injured, but we also have to see those who are doing the damage. We also have to see the people who are hurting other people because they have a story too. And see people who are disenfranchised or feel disenfranchised, Donald Trump said, we have a community for you. And that's all it took because so many people are so starved They want to be seen so desperately that anyone who says, I see you, they'll run to them. So what we need to do in our lives, in our ministries, in our communities, is to say, I see you and I adore you. And I'm gonna offer you something that will not damage you, that will not, not dehumanize you. Because when we see people who no one else has seen before, we sort of wake up their imaginations. See, this is the component of spirituality that we miss. We have to wake people up to what is possible in them. We have to wake people up to what this world could actually be to let them know that there is a oneness that they are part of, that there is a belovedness that they are already welcomed into. And people who are under duress right now and people who we think are fine, they're all feeling it. There is no one in this world who is absent of grief or not assailed by fear or not terrified by the future. Even if you're a Republican right now, you feel all the fractures, you feel all the relational discord. So we have to see people, but we also have to show people we have to show people that there is something else. As a Christian, every day I wake up and say, I need to go and be an expectation to find Christian in the world. I need to let a group of people know, I know what you've experienced, I know all the baggage, I know what that word aligns me with in your mind, but I need to show you that there's something else. There's something redemptive and beautiful. Because the one thing I've learned as a 23 year pastor and writer, is that you can't preach anyone into compassion. You cannot shout them into empathy. You cannot lecture them into caring about another human being. You have to show them. You know, being a student pastor, I work with middle and high school students, and I don't know if you know this, but they can be resistant to... Yeah, you know, okay, you know. I did a series on compassion. This is how pastors think. We'll do a four-week series on compassion and everything will be great. I broke out all the all the Jesus material. It was solid, right? You can't go wrong if you got great material. But what I started to feel like was my my students weren't getting it. It wasn't because they were, you know, middle to upper middle class white kids and there was nothing resonating. And so I said, all right, we're gonna take a mission trip. And they said, Great, where? And I said, I don't know. (laughs) We planned a mission trip to nowhere. We planned a mission trip where we would get together and we would get in vans and we had camping supplies and we had care bags and we had tools and we just said we're gonna drive and we're gonna allow ourselves to see people and respond. So I actually had 40 students sign up to take a mission trip with no destination. So yeah, that's great right here. It was great when I spoke into being in a staff meeting. And then all of a sudden we're at this planning meeting and I'm trying to prepare these students and a father comes up to me right after and he's like, hey, where are you going for real? <laughs> and I said, hey, I don't know. <laughs> so we drove, we started off and we just took off and I, the, I, we had sort of talked to them about really looking for people and body language and just trying to be a, you know, a compassionate human being. And I forgot the fact that we would have four different vans so we'd be going four different directions so within like 10 minutes the whole trip was out of my hands right um but remember we want a big god we don't want a god that we can just plan and not need so i got a text from one of the groups and they were on the side of the road they had pulled a woman was pulled over on the side of the road and they pulled over in front of her and all the kids got out we had trained them really well they all run out and they go hey do you need some prayer do you need some help what do you need and the woman was like fearful right so she said, no, I'm good, no, I'm good. And they got back, they said, have a great day. They got back in the vans. And then they said, before they could pull out, she had run back and she asked them to roll down the window and she said, well, my, I had just pulled over because I found out that my mother had passed away. And she said, and there you showed up asking if I needed prayer. Well, we took this trip for four days and it was terrifying But I never had to teach my kids about compassion again. Because we have to show people this. We have to incarnate the stuff that we're talking about, right? All the work that we do in the small and the close of your life, in your families and in your circle of friends, in the communities where you know people in your neighborhoods, we have to do this work. Show people reach across the divides of faith tradition and political ideology and all the other barriers and let people see with their eyes what we're talking about. Because then we create something they can't ignore. Then even all the mud that someone would place over their lenses is not gonna be strong enough that they'll miss it. You may have remembered when Hurricane Harvey had struck in Houston A couple of years ago, there was a scene that kept playing out. It was a scene of a person on top of a vehicle surrounded by rushing water, and then the scene of people stepping into the water and linking arms until they reached that person in peril and bringing them back in. You know what I know about the people in those human chains? They weren't all Republicans and they weren't all Democrats. And they weren't Christians and they weren't Muslims and they weren't atheists and they weren't agnostics and they weren't transgender. They were just a group of human beings who said, there is value on the other end of this and we need to do something to save them. That it's worth us spanning all our differences. Now, what I love about that moment is that there were people probably standing on the side saying, I'm a little jealous that I didn't get to be part of something that saved someone's life. And you and I, we have no excuses. We get to link with other beautiful, flawed humanity and do redemptive work in the world. So, as you leave here today, think carefully about the eyes through which you see the world, because they're going to change everything. Don't rely on false stories about people. I was at a Q&A recently and a gentleman said, you know, John, there are two news feeds in my life. There's the news feed I see every day that's loud and it's toxic and it's angry and it gives me bad news and it makes me hopeless. And he said, but if I keep my eyes on the ground and look at what's happening right in my community, I have a beautiful news feed. There are people doing bold and audacious work. There are people who are tirelessly being loud in the cause of love. And he said, And if I keep my eyes on all that stuff around me, hope is easy to find. So, my prayer for you is that you will just see with the clearest lenses that you can, and you'll create a newsfeed in this world that cannot be denied. Thank you, friends. into.
1: Wow, John. If that's you, you know, 45 minutes on the ground, that's awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, We want to give people a chance to talk with you. And once again, friends, we're going to bring the mic to you. I'm going to try to call on a diverse thing so we keep our diverse conversation flowing. Who's got a question for John? Okay, thanks. Aisha Hauser. So, hi Jackie. Hi, hi John. Um, so, I heard you talk about showing compassion, and, and a couple of things came to mind. One is um, this idea of being a centrist, and, and my response to that is, you know, do you want to be 50% away from a Nazi? So, I, I'm guessing no, right. So, the other thing is, I don't think uh, Barack Obama could have. Shown more compassion and kindness mm-hmm. to a group of people that made it their mission. I'm talking about Congress yeah. along with white people, most of them. Sure. Um, so, what do you do? I mean, there's only so much yeah. kindness. There's only so much black men, black trans people can follow the orders of a cop and still get murdered. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. Well, and, um, you know, in the, in, the, in the bigger table book, I had written about the idea of you know, of true diversity, and someone said to me after the election, he said, I'm a Trump supporter. Am I still welcome in your diversity? Am I still welcome at your table? And I said, well, here's the deal. Um, the table is not bigger because you can show up and say or do anything you want there. The table is bigger because everyone's voice is gonna be heard, and, and, and what I said at the time was, I don't wanna sacrifice vulnerable people on the altar of my diversity. I don't want to give people, force them to have proximity to damage. So the onus is on someone like myself to say, yes, we all try to come to the table, but we don't all come to the table with equal barriers and equal struggles. And so I'm always need to be cognizant of that. And um, there is nothing more that you can do. You know, someone said to me recently, so John, is are people beyond reach? And I said, some people are beyond reach right now. They may not be beyond reach in five years. I bet there are people in this room, you don't believe what you used to believe and you have things that you now have repented of because you realize that you were part of something that damaged other people. So part of it is trying to make sure I offer people the same opportunity to be transformed. And I don't know when that's gonna happen, but there are some people who we may never reach. Um, That's where I ran up into a problem with my faith tradition Because I've been telling a group of people for 10 years, hey, you, you need to live like Jesus. You need to love people who you don't agree with. And I'm going on and on. And they said, okay, now would you offer that to me? And that's when I say, I need a timeout. Because it turns out that this is really difficult and it's messy. You know, I wrote a blog post um, called Trump Supporter, Can We Talk? And it was trying to be conciliatory and saying, I want you to understand that I, I oppose this president because I... Care about my family and your family. I think I care about you far more than he does. And then people came to me and said, "Well, why are you making peace with these people? I'm supposed to be following a peacemaker. So how do I reconcile these things? Um, it's messy." It
1: can really... I can I follow up, John? Please. Um, I don't I'm breaking a rule. I think um, uh, Jim Wallace recently wrote in Sojourners a piece really challenging Christians. He's he's like, dude, uh, you cannot keep following Trump. If you're a Christian, you've got to say it's not enough that because he's pretending to be anti-abortion and right. pretending to be your people to follow him, that in fact, maybe it's time to throw down in a, in a less friendly way and and step away from uh, from that table, if you will. Yeah, what do you think about that?
0: And as a, well, as a, as a white. Christian pastor, my responsibility is to keep speaking into that thing. Because I, ha- I do have an audience with people that some won't have, right? And so people will say to me, well, why are you so hard on these people? Well, because I know that they should know better. I know the trips we've been on together. I know the sermons that they've amen. I know the songs that they sing. And that's why it really pisses me off that they don't get it. And so, yeah, um, I think progressives need to stop apologizing for their convictions. Uh, I think one of the one of the most damaging things that has happened is the Democrats have lost the ability to have a faith position. They've relinquished the idea of spirituality and that's really a really mistake.
1: Thank you, John. Sure. Thank you so much. Hi. Hi. I'm sorry. Oh, thank you. Hi, my name is Deanne Terrell. How are you? (laughs) Um, My question is this. Um, One of my former pastors who, Reverend Terry Steve Pierce of um, Joy Metropolitan Community Church has said, all are welcome, but not all behavior is welcome. Mm. So when I hear you say that, that resonates deeply with me, and I agree with that 100%. So my question is, what are some of the key strategic points that you have used to negotiate conversations between opposing parties that are based on ideology rather than personhood Mm. along the lines of being mindful to not shame individuals regardless of their stance but to challenge ideology in a a mutually productive manner thank you
0: yeah great Uh, well part of it is um, i try to insist when we have a conversation that we have an agenda-free environment which means i need you to be able to look at another person without the desire to fix or change or save or renovate them because when you can let go of those things then god can do something right so it's really trying to make sure that they view that other person as as fully complex as they are and that's a challenge because when you have someone who the voice of god has been telling them that a gay person is needs to be fixed it's hard to argue with god but so I need to try to chip away at those elemental things. Um, you know, I, our church in Raleigh um, at that I was working at the time of the election, I said, well, well let's open up the, the, the church on Wednesday for people who are grieving. And someone said, well, that would be a political statement, so we can't do that. And we really missed an opportunity. To, to speak eloquently into what was happening because I think we yielded to the wrong voices. And the pastor said to me, well, John, here's the thing. Those people who, you're gonna be upset, who are going to be upset with you, we want them to go with us where we're going. And I said, we have to go and know that they may not come with us, but where we are going is worth going anyway. Yeah. And so part of it is realizing that I, I need to tell people there are a lot of faith communities and you can be in a faith community where you don't recognize the inherent beauty in this person, but that's not this one. Yeah. You cannot stay and do that. That's really
1: good, thank you. Another question, please. Hi, I'm Barbara. Nice Hi. to meet you. You as well. Um, one of the most important things when uh, with my youth group um, was they actually, even at that time, Took us to a synagogue. Mm. Took us. What, what do you do with your kids um, to introduce them to interfaith experience? Yes,
0: I'm not an active youth pastor right now, which is probably why I sleep a little better. Um, but I, that was a day, That was a, a project. That we we had about 40 partners in, in the city of Charlotte. And we would regularly spend time with them and so when i talk we did an alternative spring break where we had uh five days nine projects a day and those were all those weren't we're gonna drop in and shake our you know holy water over the place and we're not just going to be white saviors this was ministries we had a relationship with so my students lived life alongside people they didn't just understand issues or other religions they had friends they had people that they knew so that was a daily part of our rhythm and that's i think that was all after all that that trip that we did because they realized okay maybe my idea of the world is a little bit smaller than it should be so yeah
1: thank you john hi my name's molly hi I'm curious how your whiteness has changed in this process of like leaving your Superman megachurch life. And well,
0: it's, it's all that's changed as I've become more aware of it every day, right? I mean, you know, and I wrote a blog post originally called If I Have Gay Children, which at that time, not even using the LGBTQ language, um, I, I had someone say to me, John, listen, You're a white guy. You're always gonna be a white guy. And because of that, you're always gonna have baggage with you and you're gonna have to spend a lot of time trying to overcome that and you may never overcome it. But I learned that my privilege was currency, that I had to spend that as wisely as I could. And every day, that's, that's what I do. I say, well, what can I do with this This gift that I have been given in being able to speak into lives of other people who don't know, who haven't seen what I've seen a little bit. But it's a daily, I mean, it's a daily learning because you can look back, most of us can look back and say, I really wish I hadn't said that or done that. Um, There's an incredible humility when you realize the defaults you've been living with your whole life has been damaging to other people. Um, So I try to be aware of that. And that's all I can do. you know. Hopefully, tomorrow, I'm going to know more than I knew today.
1: Thank you, John. Um, thank you, Bertram, and thank you, Rob, for moving the mics. Uh, Susan Davis with Middle Project. Thank you so much for your work. How do you uh, address and uh, engage in dialogue around um, I think our, uh, our country's original sin, uh, the genocide of the indigenous nations that were here.
0: So how do I, I'm sorry, I missed the, the, the first part of that.
1: <clears throat> how do you engage uh, in dialogue and discussion as you travel around mm. uh, the country about what I think is uh, our country's original sin, I the genocide so. of the indigenous nations?
0: Well, part of the work I think that we're doing right now, I talked about that compound fracture that now we see it. I think so many people who have been oblivious to certain parts of our history, um, they're now reckoning with so much. And so that's always going to be part of the conversation. You're right. That is when I speak to white evangelicals, that does not exist in their minds. Right. So as they're vilifying outsiders and immigrants and violent people, all I have to do is say, if you would read an actual history book, we could address this. Um, so it's really just about making sure that we share information with people. Um, the, remember those, I told you I got better stories. We, we need a better story about America. We need a truer story about America. Yeah.
1: Can, can I follow up there? Please, yes, so, um, you know, we are sitting in a building that's sitting on Lenape land, mm. uh, Manahata, hilly well, yeah. town, hilly city, and then this was Lenape land. Um, and you said we need, we need better education. What, whose responsibility is it to teach? I mean, whose, whose job is it to teach and how do we do it? If they agree with you, but whose mm. responsibility is it to teach and how do we do it? Wow, um, I mean,
0: I have access to my kids. I have an audience with them that no one else has. Mm-hmm. So if I'm not teaching my kids, I can't rely on someone else yeah. too. Uh, the problem is I think the people that we're talking about have abandoned large sections of reality and truth. Mm-hmm. So um, that's a beautiful question and I don't have the answer to it. I think, I used to tell my students' parents, I'll see them for two hours a week. Mm-hmm. You'll see them with the other 160 whatever hours. And so that's our responsibility.
1: Yeah. Thank you, John. Sure. Yes. Wait, wait, wait for the mic, love. Wait for the mic. It's coming to you. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go. Hi. Um, you're, you, you were in the South uh, as a minister for a while. I'm from the South. And you know, who would, who is it that said, um, Sundays are the most segregated days of the week? Mm-hmm. Martin Luther King. Martin Luther King, yes. And so, <laughs> is church the problem or is it the solution? Because we just, it starts there, where the segregation yeah. and the advantage, disadvantage, all that starts there. Right. So what do ministers and all of us do to change that segregated situation?
0: Yes. Uh, that's a whole seminar in itself. Um, that's a whole conference. I th- you know, for me, I actually grew up in Turkey so in Philadelphia. So 90 minutes from here, um, this was the heart of what I felt comfortable in. And I got to the South and I was sort of shocked. Um, I, I tend to fight. Yeah. I tend to fight both with and for my faith tradition right now because I I see it as beautiful and my heart wants to believe that the answer is going to be in redemptive spiritual community, but I also see the damage that it's caused. I think if you build your church on a theology that is exclusionary, you've got no chance, right? And so what you love to come to a community like this that is built on something else, built on our oneness. Um, Yeah. I mean... In a lot of ways, it's no mystery, right? If you teach certain things, that's going to be the law of your land, right? And so when you talk about something that's revolutionary love, you say, this is who we are. And there are people who will, will not want to come here yet because they're not ready for revolutionary love yet.
1: One. Yes.
2: Hi. My name is Alexandria. Um, Hi. I kind of want to expand on what we were just saying because... Technically, I'm a millennial, went to Berkeley College of Music, working on, a sing- on my first album. And the whole purpose of this is to implement this activism in a commercial way. Mm. So I do think that right now you just look at the demographic and a lot of people here are in a dire- generation that may not find social media cool. Mm. But I do think that if you know the first speaker and yourself talking about your children and just reaching out to the youth and starting to find ways that people in power, white privilege or whoever it may be, to find out ways to find the Kardashians, to reach out with them cross promoting on social media, start Mm. implementing these messages in a not so aggressive way. And I love what you said about, and I wrote it down for my own, Activism mm. about not preaching because no teenager wants to be preached at. You're automatically going to rebel. Mm. So it's like someone like me who want, who's a light worker, who wants to get this message out. How do I market myself in a way that's cool and still, mm. yeah?
0: Yeah, so. and thank you. And that's a, that's delicate, uh, you know. For me, I, you know, I'll, if you are a Christian and you, or you're not and you just want to read a, a fun chapter, it's Matthew chapter 23. And Jesus basically rails into the religious leaders over and over again. And we would say he's harsh, right? Um, but he, he doesn't lose the, the redemptive spirit of what he's saying because it's direct, because he is fueled by compassion for those who are being damaged, not to try and injure those who are doing the damaging. So I think we, you know, we leverage social media, but we, I, I speak very directly because I think sometimes um, we can be um, so soft that people don't realize how pissed off we are and this is not theology we're talking about. These are the lives of people. So we leverage everything. Yeah, I'm, I'm a social media, I don't know if you know my story, but I, a blog post basically, I was fired, wrote a blog post, this happened. Yeah. So I'm a living you know, example of that. And so I use every tool at my disposal, but I never, I never try to speak to keep readers and I never try to speak in a way to avoid losing readers.
1: Just speak I truth. just try
0: to speak whatever is on my heart and trust that that's going to be the place that I'm going to land.
1: Friends, John Pavlovitz. Thank, great, great.
0: Hey, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.